All right. We're recording here. Matthew 13. Start finding your way there. I grew up in a pretty, I would say, unique place. Del Rio, Texas, right on the border of Mexico. So, like, to get to Mexico from the house I was raised in, you go down one block and take a left. And then go down six streets and take a right. You're in Mexico. My parents still live there. They live like exactly two. They moved. They moved further in to the United States. So now they live exactly two miles from Mexico. So they've really gone far in. But it was a unique place, you know. Like a large portion of my childhood was without a movie theater. It's like very isolated. If to get to anything, you got to drive like a couple of hours. Like three hours north will get you to San Angelo. Three hours east will get you to San Antonio. But and I never got to travel, so I spent like all my time in Del Rio. Never got to travel hardly. Um, but I got to experience something that you guys, growing up in the Metroplex, probably won't really get to relate to. And that is the excitement of, like, Taco Bell coming to town. Like, we are getting a Taco Bell. And, like, you are thrilled and excited to get Taco Bell. Or Jack in the Box was another one. Wendy's was just over the top because you got the chili and the Frosties. So, like, when Wendy's came to town, it was just sheer excitement. Sonic, oh, man, I remember when Sonic came. But y'all can't really relate to that, can you? Why? If I gave you a jack and if I said, hey, we're going to have jack in the box this weekend. Why does that not get you terribly excited? You're pretty, you got Chick-fil-A <laughs> and you're pretty familiar with jack in the box, right? There's no novelty to it. See, this really worked against me when I went to college because I went to college and like I, I had my first date and I'm like, all right, I'm going to impress this girl. I'm taking her to Chili's. I've been to Chili's once in a lifetime up till college. It was on a road trip, so I thought it was like a special thing. She wasn't that impressed. Familiarity. She, Chili's was a novelty for me, like a unique, rare thing. Who was the girl? Oh. (laughs) Unimportant detail at this point in my life. Um, But it was a novelty to me. See, familiarity can breed contempt, right? Or familiarity, you can be so familiar with something that you fail to be amazed by it. Or you fail to have proper appreciation for it because it's just something that you can experience, that you're familiar with, that you can see anytime you want. You experience it when you go on vacation, right? Like you'll go on vacation and see a local and they'll be like, why are you here? Like kids growing up there are bored because it's the place that they're at every single day. For you, it's awesome. It's your vacation and it's unique and there's novelty and the freshness of the experience excites you. But for some kid who grows up there, eh, they're like, this is just what I'm used to, right? What's remarkable is we see this with God. We see this with the person of Jesus Christ where people can become so comfortable in a negative way so in a negative way familiar with God that they lose sight of the truth of who he really is 
They lose that amazement that they should have in the presence of the Creator. What we see in the life and ministry of Christ is people who were so familiar with Him, yet failed to see the reality of who Jesus truly is. We see that tonight in this passage. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to finish out Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. We're going to look at this in three different parts. The first part is just a change of scenery. This is one of those passages where we shift gears in the scenery, the flow of the story, what's going on, radically changes. What have we been looking at for like the past months or month or two maybe? Parables, right? Matthew 13 has been all focused on Jesus teaching in parables. Where has he been? That's kind of a hard question. I don't know if anybody's going to. On the planet Earth. Let's get more specific if possible. No, actually. Galilee, like on the Sea of Galilee, the region of Capernaum. So like the northern parts of Israel. He's been on the northern parts of Israel around Peter's home on the Sea of Galilee or along the Sea of Galilee, um, teaching the crowds. And we get a major change of scenery, a major change in the flow of the narrative here. We're leaving the parables onto something else. So the first thing we'll look, about, look at is just the change of scenes. The second piece, the response of the people. Because what do you expect as Jesus moves on to a new geographic area, kind of a new scene? What do you expect Jesus to do? What does he always do everywhere he goes? Preaching. Preaching. Everywhere he goes, he's proclaiming the gospel. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching God's word, teaching God's truth. So we'll see Jesus continue to do what he always does. And the second thing we'll see is the response of the people. So the change of scenes, the response of the people, and the third part we'll look at is the response of Jesus. Jesus responding to the people. So let's read verses 53 to 58. And then we'll look at these individual parts. Starting in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. What this passage shows us is that many people most familiar with Jesus failed to realize who he really is. They failed to realize who he really is. We start with the change of scenes. 
verses starting in verse 53, the change of scene. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, from the area of the Sea of Galilee, northern Israel. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So it says he withdraws back to his hometown. What's his hometown? Nazareth. Any other? Not Bethlehem, right? Like, so where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. But why was his family in Bethlehem? Yeah, they're going back for the census, right? And you gave a way more technical answer than I expected, but you're right. You had to go back to report for the census um, to where your, your lineage came from. And so it, Bethlehem is where he was born, but that wasn't his hometown. That's like if your mom, while she's pregnant with you, she goes to like Miami for a vacation and like you just happen to come unexpectedly in Miami. So you live like your first three days in Miami before flying back to Fort Worth and and being here for like you wouldn't call Miami your hometown just because that's where you happen to be born. Right. So some go ahead. Well, there you go. There you go. But so Jesus, some people be like, well, see, this is a contradiction because here we have Jesus in Nazareth and the Bible calling it his hometown when he was born in Bethlehem. It's like, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem, but this is where he grew up. This is where he was raised. And so that's why we call Nazareth his hometown. And it's still northern Israel. So if you had the map, I should have brought a map, but like if you have the Israel region and you got the Sea of Galilee up in the northern part, kind of to the east. This is just back further west, still in the northern part of Israel, though. And just like Jesus always does, he gets to Nazareth and he's teaching the word of God. He's teaching in the synagogues. The synagogues, you can think of a synagogue almost exactly as we would think of a church. It's where the Jewish people met to worship, just like we go to church on Sunday mornings to learn God's word, to fellowship, to worship. That's where the Jews you went to. That's why the Jews went to the synagogue. And that's where Jesus was regularly teaching the people. Jesus was a teacher. That was his life mission. Proclaim the gospel, call people to repentance, call people to reconciliation with the father. So that's our change of scenery here. Very drastic change from what we've been looking at so far in chapter 13. So what is the response of the people to the teaching of Jesus? Our second part here, the response of the people. It says in verse 54 that they were astonished. They were astonished. They were just blown away. They were marveling at his incredible wisdom and his incredible powers and his not incredible powers, his miraculous powers. What is a miracle? Uh, Something that can't be defined by science. Yeah, something that just evades natural explanation. 
So not something amazing. Like sometimes we'll talk about the miracle of childbirth or like the miracle of how the eyes see. Those are very, very incredible, very impressive things. But we have science can explain those things, right? Like we can study and explain how nature, God created nature. God created those processes in the natural order and understand those things. A miracle is when something happens that there is no natural explanation for it. Like this is very obviously the power of God piercing into time and space to do something that naturally should not, cannot happen. That's what Jesus was doing. And what's remarkable here, these people are astonished. Do they deny the wisdom of Christ? They're astonished at his wisdom. These people aren't saying like, oh, Jesus is dumb. Why would we go listen to that guy? He's a dope. This guy's foolish. No, they were... They were astonished at his wisdom. These people would tell you, wow, this Jesus is teaching extraordinary things. We've seen all through the Gospels. They are regularly astounded at the authority with which Christ taught with. So many of the other rabbis, the other teachers, they taught with reliance on the authority of others. Referring to others, Jesus taught with his own authority, and they were astonished. Did they deny his miraculous powers here? No, they're astonished by it. They're astonished by his miraculous powers. They're not saying like, oh, he's a fraud. Like, you know, you see the stuff on TV where you got like the crowd and like the person walks up on the cane. You like, you, you know that person was playing it there, like with the cane. They're perfectly healthy. They were pretending to be sick. And, you know, nobody's doubting Christ here. There's no discrediting that miraculous things are being done through him. Think about all we've seen as we've gone through Matthew. Sick people made instantly perfectly well. Dead people made instantly healthy and alive. The forces of nature, wind, seas, storms, Instantly calmed. Demons, spiritual forces, instantly yielding to the commands of Jesus. And the news about him continually spreads. These things are so amazing, so extraordinary, so inexplicable. The news about it is spreading everywhere. That's why, as we've seen throughout Matthew, people are coming from all over the place with their sick needing to be healed because they know Jesus can do these things. There's no denying the miraculous powers. So if we stop here, you have to feel like these people are in a really good position, right? They recognize the wisdom of the words of Christ. They recognize the miraculous power. They don't deny any of that. Instead, They're astonished by it. They're marveling at it. Don't you feel pretty optimistic for these people? This sounds like we're in a pretty good spot, right? But we just read these verses. Does the story go from here how you would expect it to?
does this astonishment, respect for the wisdom and power of Christ, does it lead to salvation? Very interestingly, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's an amazing thing. It is such a reminder of the impossibility of salvation unless what happens? What has to happen for a person to come to salvation? They have to be told and they have to believe. And how, you're exactly right. And how does the Bible tell us that belief takes place? I haven't heard from her in a while. We've had you for years, and I like you a lot, but I've never gotten to hear. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm distracting. Um, She's exactly right. For salvation to happen, people have to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And how does the Bible tell us that belief takes place? You true, how, do you, how does one come to truly? We'll go to Ben since he had. You're right. But how does that true belief? Because think about it. Hold on, Ben, before we hear it. I bet Ben has the answer. He's usually pretty sharp. The, think about it. By nature, we are spiritually dead, right? The Bible tells us that like, we are born with a sinful nature that wants to rebel against God. That we are hopeless in our sinfulness. We are by nature enemies of wrath. But then what happens, Ben? The Holy Spirit has to enter. The Holy Spirit causes spiritual life. The way so Ephesians chapter two verses one to three are all about our natural spiritual death. I guess I'll just read it. I wasn't planning on it, but let's just read it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So what verses one to three of Ephesians two is telling us is like by nature, you are spiritually helpless. You can do nothing. And then verse four starts with, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. You hop over to verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, just like these ladies said right here, 100% correct. By grace you have been saved through faith, but that not of yourselves. The faith, the belief that you're talking about, you don't even get credit for that. You don't even get credit for that. It is the gift of God, verse 8 of Ephesians 2 tells us, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So, in summary, it's not simply enough to see the works of Christ, to hear the message of Christ, and even be astonished by it. There has to be spiritual renewal by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus told Nicodemus, 
You have to be born again. You have to be born again. It's why, think about this, celebrity pastors. You know, me and my, I have a friend at work. I was talking to him. You know Vince. I told you all. I was going to San Antonio last week. There's this guy at work named Vince. He might listen to this, so I should think about that. He's one of my best friends. Love Vince. And um, we're going to talk about God. I, Vince is a Roman Catholic. I don't know. In fact, I don't know if he really knows where he stands spiritually. But we got into the topic of celebrity pastors. And they're in all denominations, right? Like all different walks. I mean, you got, you got them on TV. You got them in our show. It's just something that kind of happens when somebody is uniquely used by God. People are drawn to that. But it's why you can have so many people emotionally, psychologically get infatuated with these nationally known pastors, whether they're good or bad, there's all sorts, right? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how enamored people can get with like these movements within the church and with just how funny this pastor is. There's usually a few categories, right? It's like the funny pastor, they get a lot of attention. Like they get a good gathering or maybe you have the real powerful speaker who's just like real fundamentally sound and people are drawn to that. Like we want a very good, solid, um, fundamentally sound preacher. Or maybe there's one who just emotionally is great at getting people engaged or like at a psychological level, whatever it may be, people can get enamored with these things, yet their heart doesn't ever get changed. They're getting caught up in like the amazement of what's going on in this church or this movement, but there's no actual renewal by the Holy Spirit, and it's completely useless. And their lives are still dead in sin because it doesn't matter how astonished you are. It doesn't matter how excited you get about a speaker or what you see in the church. If it doesn't involve the Holy Spirit renewing your heart, renewing your mind, bringing you to a place of recognizing that you are sinful and in desperate need of a Savior, And coming to a place of repenting, turning from your sin, and looking to Jesus Christ and begging him for forgiveness, seeking grace and salvation through him, then it doesn't matter how excited you are about a pastor, a church, or anything else. You are as lost as the people in this passage are. But we see it all the time. It happens with miracles too, right? You got it in the church movements today. People get drawn to certain churches because they still believe in these miraculous gifts, right? And who wouldn't want to be a part of that? If you can be physically healed like that, sign me up, right? But like people get drawn to that. And you see it throughout the New Testament. People in Acts chapter eight, there's this guy, Simon Magus in Acts chapter eight. And he sees what, the apostles are doing, these miracles that they're able to perform. And he is instantly drawn to it. He is instantly enthusiastic about the work of the apostles, about what they're doing. But here's the thing. He's only in it for what he can get. He's only drawn to the miracle part. His heart hasn't been changed. He hasn't come to a realization of who Jesus Christ is and given himself to that. 
And he ends up asking, like, I think it's Peter. Peter, hey, can, I want this miraculous power. What do I need to give you? What do I need to pay you to get this miraculous power? And Peter says, man, you don't get it at all. Let your money perish with you. You need to be born again. You need Jesus Christ. First Timothy 6, 5, it warns us about people who see godliness as a means to gain. People who get excited again culturally or whatever about a church movement, but their heart is not changed. The bottom line, these people were astonished. They recognized the wisdom of Christ. They recognized the miracles, yet they still completely missed it. How does that happen? There's no explanation other than by nature, we are spiritually dead and helpless. And nothing, no amount of miracles or whatever can change that until the Holy Spirit gives us a heart of belief. If you want salvation, you better go to the Holy Spirit. If you want your faith to be strengthened, you better go to the Holy Spirit. If you want your heart to be changed over your sin, pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone can make that change. The Holy Spirit alone gives faith. You'll say, what are the purposes of miracles? Well, the purposes of miracles are solidifying the faith of God's people. John 20, 31, John says that, hey, I recorded all these miracles so that you can know who Jesus Christ is, so that you can know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The prophets, they had their words, the word of God delivered to the people of God, verified, validated by miracles. Jesus Christ, for his people, for God's people, validated his ministry as the Son of God with miracles. That's what John 20, 31 says. These things were written so that you may believe. The apostles, why did the apostles continue Miracles, validating that they were the spokespeople, the spokesmen for God. Miracles are about strengthening the faith of God's people and validating his messengers. But what we see here is that concept. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Look at verses 54 to 57 again. They're astonished. Where did he get these miracles and these powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In other words, is Jesus not just a regular guy? Like, how's he doing all this stuff? Like, How is he performing all these miracles, all this great way? He's just a normal guy. He comes from a normal family. Okay. Was Jesus, now be careful how you answer here. Was Jesus a man? 
a regular man, a normal man. Describe. Huh? Describe. What's a regular man? Was he a human? Like me. Like you. Just a human being. Yes. Yeah, 100%, right? Jesus is 100% man. Yeah. It, it is weird to say that, right? I don't know. Maybe I should... Maybe I should think about... Well, that's just it, though. Is that where the story ends? So, yes, 100% man. There's no question there. But is that where it ends with Jesus? These people, they're missing half of the big picture, right? Because Jesus, while being 100% man, is at the same time 100% God. Yes, He is the son of Joseph, the son of Mary. He's got brothers and sisters, just like many of you do. He is 100% human, just like you all. But that's not the full picture. That's not the full scope of who Jesus is. Jesus is also 100% God, the Messiah that all of redemptive history has pointed to, the Lord of Lords, the creator of this world, the sustainer of this world. Look at Colossians 1, 15 to 16. He created all things. All things are for him. All things are sustained by him. And he demands your worship and your praise. That's what these people missed. Incidentally, if you ever hear somebody talking like, hey, Mary was a virgin, Forever. Jesus had siblings. We've seen this numerous times in Matthew. We see it throughout the New Testament. We see it here. Jesus had siblings, right? So um, Jesus was definitely not Mary's only child. And Jesus was the only child miraculously conceived through the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is much more than just man. Or as verse 56 says, um, where did this man get all these things? Well, he is also the son of God. And look at their response in verse 57. They took offense at him. Has has Jesus talked about taking offense at him already? Do y'all remember that at all? Anybody? In Matthew? What about, remember, I think it's chapter 12, when the disciples of John the Baptist come up to him and they're like, hey, um, actually it's chapter 11. They're like, hey, are you the son of God? What does Jesus say? He says, yes, essentially. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. You see, what does Jesus call us to what does Jesus call us to? What, what does he say about repentance? What does he say about repentance? What is repentance? Turning away from your sin. Into God, right? Turning away from your sin into God. Is that part of the salvation that God calls us to in the following of Christ? Absolutely. Jesus says, in fact, if you want to be his disciple, 
You've got to be willing to die to yourself and leave everything behind to follow him with 100% commitment. Now, if Jesus is 100% man and you leave off the God part, is that offensive? Yeah. Like, who's some person to say, hey, leave everything to follow me? Turn from your entire lifestyle and submit yourself to me. Yeah, if you forget or you don't recognize that Jesus is the son of God, his divinity, then yes, it's offensive. But the fact that Jesus is fully God, he is worthy of our lives, of our everything. And so these people failing to recognize who Jesus is in verse 57 says they took offense at him. And you just can't help but read that and think, wait a second. Back in chapter 11, Jesus said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. These people take offense at him. So we have the change of scenery, Jesus teaching in a new scenery. We have the response of the people, which is amazement and astonishment, yet not belief, not salvation. So now we see the response of Christ. Verse 57 They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Uh, That a prophet without honor is not without honor except in his hometown. It's, again, that concept, familiarity breeds contempt. That they're so familiar with Jesus They're failing to see the reality of who he is. They're failing to have the amazement that they should have. And it says he refused to do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Because, again, the miracles had been done. The the news, the understanding of all that Jesus had accomplished up to this point in his earthly ministry, that news has spread. There's never been a lack of awareness of what Jesus is capable of because that's why we see hundreds and thousands of people flocking to him from all over the place. Yet, certainly the miracles of Christ, they were done out of love. They were done out of of compassion, but that wasn't the primary purpose. Again, the primary purpose of the miracles was to validate the message of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought. And that message had been validated. Those miracles had been accomplished. Now, whether they chose to believe it or not is a totally different matter, right? Whether they choose to believe what Jesus had already presented to them or not is a totally different matter. But more miracles was not going to do the trick. Because once again, what brings a person to salvation? It's the Holy Spirit bringing spiritual life into a spiritually dead person. It's not somebody being convinced by an overwhelming amount of miracles. In fact, if we see anything throughout the Bible, it's that it doesn't matter what people see. Miracles aren't ever going to save anybody because the issue is a heart that hates God and a heart that loves sin and a heart that needs to be born again. We have countless times, including tonight's passage, where 
people have ample amount of miracles, yet still choose to reject who Jesus Christ is. More miracles were not going to do the trick. So how do we apply this? As any time that we've looked at Matthew, the most important question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? That is literally the single most important question you will ever answer in your life. More important than who you marry, more important than what college you go to, what career path you take. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? It's an answer that you can't avoid giving. And your answer to that question is the single most important thing in your life. Do you recognize Jesus not just as an incredible man, like these people, they recognize him as an incredible man. It did nothing to save their souls. Do you recognize Jesus as the Son of God, as God himself? Do you recognize him as your Lord, as your Savior? Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself? Because that has one ending place. Hell. Living for yourself, living for anybody else, living for your parents, living for the hope of a marriage one day or whatever. All those lead to nothing but damnation. Are you living for Jesus Christ? Because as the Son of God, that's what he calls you to. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? There's only two camps. There's the camp of those who believe, those who have been redeemed, God's people, those who have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the camp that all these people are in. There's only two camps. You're either right in this crowd, taking offense at Jesus, or you're somebody, when Jesus makes a demand on your life, do you take offense like these people, or do you recognize, hey, <laughs> you're, you're the Lord, you're God. You have the right to command every bit of my life. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? That's the first thing I want you to think about. Because it's the absolute most important thing. But if you're a believer, if you feel pretty confident about what you would say there, that yes, I, Jesus is Lord, he's son of God, and I fully give my life to him. There's still that danger. While your soul is safe, your salvation is secure, we can always face the danger of becoming, in an unhealthy way, familiar with God. To where we start to lose our amazement for who he truly is, for, for who he is as God. I think it can happen easily when we grow up in Christian homes, which is a great, great, great blessing and a great thing. Or we go to church every Wednesday and Sunday and events in between, which again is a great, great blessing and a great, great thing. Those are all good and important things. But it's like that, that constant access 
You have to remind yourself freshly every day who you are, who Jesus is, who you are in relation to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily recontemplation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not letting yourself just get into a familiar routine. It's easy to get into familiar routines, right? Like, oh, this is what we do. We just go to church. We sing some songs. I don't really think about them because I've heard them a hundred times. So I've got them memorized and they just kind of effortlessly roll through my head. I don't have to think about it at all. And we just kind of go through these motions. It's fun. Hang out with my friends. We get to talk Fortnite and stuff like that. Um, It's easy to do, right? It's easy to fall into routines and it's easy to lose sight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I would challenge you there. I would challenge you to make sure you don't get too familiar with God in an unhealthy way. Too, too comfortable with God in an unhealthy way. That's why God taught the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Like the recognition of who God is. And that walking with him, being his child, is just an unfathomable privilege, Unfathomable, bless, unfathomable blessing, but like let your mind daily fall into just the depths of trying to contemplate that. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for just your word that you show us who you are and that you renew our hearts. You give us the faith to believe. And I pray, Lord, that you would grow our faith and just grow our love for you and our understanding of you. Um, Help us just daily to be renewed in our amazement and uh, to just daily fall in love with you again. I just pray you'd grow us in those things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.